Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit, the newest and most reliable state-of-the-art time-traveling transportation service, is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Odyssey. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 16 of the podcast. This week, I chatted with John Haberstrow, a friend and current Classics PhD candidate at UC Riverside. John and I met after the Ozymandias Project began proudly partnering with the Save Ancient Studies Alliance, for which John volunteers. This was such a fun and fantastic conversation because we are both extremely passionate about the open access barrier issues that often people encounter when trying to get involved with the ancient studies. We made sure to offer our thoughts on how to deconstruct common artificial barriers, moving away from a top-down patronage-style funding model to a more sustainable funding model, and about the ways people can better participate in growing the awareness of the ancient studies. I hope our conversation will inspire all of you wonderful listeners to check out SASA's events and to continue to listen to the podcast. With that, enjoy this episode, and I will speak to you all next time. All right. So thanks for joining me in this fine morning. Uh, I just want to start by asking you uh, a little bit about yourself and how did you get into classics? Because I've always found that it's a pretty unique story for everyone uh, that I meet. There's no right way in, I suppose. That's right. Yeah, there's lots of ways to get in, into this. Um, and sometimes you get stuck and you can't get out. But uh, my name is John Haberstroh. I'm a PhD candidate in history at the University of California, Riverside. And I study Greek history, a um, little bit of Roman stuff, a little bit of Persian stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I just have a lot of fun with what I do. Um, and it's kind of nice to spend my time researching and reading up on, on all of these really interesting topics that I get into. But how I got into ancient stuff um, is kind of backwards <laughs> because I actually started off as an undergrad major in history studying colonial America. And I thought that's what I wanted to you know, get into. And I imagined myself being a high school teacher or something like that. And as I took these courses in you know, colonial America, I kept coming across these you know, intellectual uh, influences that our so-called founding fathers had uh, about Greece and Rome. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let me check that out. So then I um, you know, took a class on ancient Greece and I basically got stuck in antiquity and never returned to studying American history. <laughs> so I had a really great 
mentor at Cal State Long Beach. And he eventually became my master's thesis advisor. And then he convinced me to do a PhD. So then I, I spent a year at UCLA in their classics postback program. Uh, so I got the, that was a real ringer, let me tell you. And then, uh, I, yeah, then I just got sent off to uh, UC Riverside where I'm, I'm hopefully going to finish my dissertation here in a, in a year or so. But yeah, that's, uh, that's how I got into it. It was kind of an accident. Uh, you know, I think that's pretty par for the course. I would say, you know, when I went to college, I went in as like an anthropology major just because I didn't know classics existed. And then uh, first day of school, a girl in my dorm who lived, who was like, her room was like three doors down from mine. I just remember she was complaining pretty loudly in the hall. So I just kind of went up to her and was like, hey, you okay, dude? Like, what's up? And she was like, she was like I'm so bad at history and I'm so bad at mythology and things and she's like I don't know why but I'm in this mythology course and I know I'm gonna hate it and I don't want to go alone it's the first day of school freshman year help will you come with me and I was like oh I didn't know there's a mythology class sure 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 I'll go so uh long story short I went and um I loved that one mythology class so much that I went up to the professor after school, kind of ambushed him. And then I said, hey, can I stay in this class? And then he said, sure. And then uh, after meeting with the anthro advisor, she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, myth is part of our classics department. I think that's that's where you should be. It sounds like where your interests are. So uh, here's the advisor. Have a good life. So, wow. yeah. So I think, <laughs> you know, we all fall into it somehow and then stay there but yeah. yeah and and um so everyone has like a lot of different areas of interest certainly because it's impossible to just pick like one sure. but what would you say your favorite area of interest is the favorite topic that you're currently working on yeah so my primary research interest is in this concept called panhellenism and this is a modern construct of the ancient greek past Basically, it's, a, it's another way of saying collective Greek identity, right? It's, it's, it's this kind of label that's often used to describe different things in Greek history that I've come across. And I stumbled upon the word Panhellenism when I was in my master's program. And I just saw it being used in so many different ways and in different contexts. I thought that this was weird. And so I kept reading more and more and basically... It's kind of a catch-all that, that just gets thrown around. And I think that's not intellectually a, a good way to go using that term. And so I see it as my mission, my scholarly mission to kind of problematize that term and basically say that every time I see the word, I think, what do you mean by <laughs> pan-Hellenic? What is pan-Hellenic about this particular thing that you're actually talking about, because I can imagine 10 different ways that it's not Panhellenic, that if you look at it from a different perspective, this is clearly showing uh, some type of local tradition, or it's, um, it's going against the grain of the kind of collective discourse of culture, of political history, of different things. And so in order to tackle that humongous topic, <laughs> my research focuses on Greek sanctuaries, and I'm looking at Greek sanctuaries in the Northeast Peloponnese. And so this is, uh, you know, near Corinth, near Argos, near Epidaurus. And so there's these four sanctuaries that I'm looking at. And I'm looking at them from a local point of view. I'm deliberately fronting the local aspect of these sanctuaries. Because all of these sanctuaries at different times in, in, in you know, history, they're referred to as Pan-Hellenic sanctuaries. And again, I think... 
But were they really panhellenic at all times to all people? No, of course not, right? Yet panhellenic is just the easiest adjective you can use. And so it gets tossed out there a lot. And part of it is, you know, I'll, I'll concede there was a panhellenic dimension, right? There are these festivals that attracted folks from lots of different places in the Greek world. And, you know, they would come together and participate in communal rituals, athletic festivals, ritual sacrifices, and, you know, different types of processions and, you know, different things. However, if you look at how often they do this, these festivals are once every four years, sometimes. Sometimes it's every every two years. That's not a very frequent, that's less than we celebrate birthdays, <laughs> you know? But yet those instances are seen as kind of these moments where everyone comes together and it's, and it's kumbaya. And then another aspect of that is that these sanctuaries were hotly contested among local city-states. At one point in the early fourth century, Argos goes over to Corinth and says, hey, we like you. Let's merge our city-states together. And Corinth is like, okay, sure. And so they literally join their city-states together and Argos celebrates the Isthmian games of a particular year and it was 390 or something. And it's like, but that's Corinth's state festival. Why is Argos celebrating the festival? And again, this is just an, an instance of local city-states are trying to assert their influence upon these local sanctuaries. And, and they're doing it really interesting things with it. And so, you know, this whole region here is, has these, uh, I'm looking at these four particular ones, but, uh, you know, these, these sanctuaries are, are more, much, much more than simply symbols of a common Greek identity. They are tokens that are fought over among local Greeks. I think it's really interesting that you have chosen to look at these sanctuaries when I think the most obvious example of panhellenism that I can remember from being in school was talking about the Olympic Games and then some of the smaller games. So I think it's a really cool dimension that you're like, no, you know what? I'm not just going to do the easy one. I'm just, I'm not just going to talk about the, the games. Like that's boring. I mean, everyone just travels around and competes in these games. And then we, in our culture, we use panhellenic. You're right for, for a lot. The, the first thing that popped in my mind when you said panhellenic these days, uh, as, as stupid as it sounds, I was like, oh, Every Greek system on campuses, right, for mm-hmm. sororities and fraternities. When I was at Mizzou, I, I remember they were doing the Pan-Hellenic Council something. I had friends who were That's right. in sororities, and uh, I was not. So I was like, what? Okay. Well, I mean, I guess this is Greek life, but I'm like, you're not really Greek. But and the, yeah. irony of, the irony of Greek life is that they use the words sorority and fraternity, which are most close, much more close to to Latin (laughs) than it is to Greek. It was an interesting idea, I think. And it wasn't designed by classicists, I don't think. (laughs) So so can we make an argument that that you should be redesigning the entire Greek system, quote unquote, (laughs) for college campuses? Should should we have a classist go in there and say, no, if you want to be pan-Hellenic, you got to do this, this and this. You have to do it every four years in the same place and you have to sacrifice a hundred bulls and there's going to be lots of wine. And that, yeah, if you don't do it like that, you're not really Greek. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, it's, it's fun to imagine. I'm like, well, what would we call them though? What Greek name do we have to give them if they're, if they, if we don't want them to be fraternities and sororities? I'm like, I don't even yeah. know. I don't That's know. a hard one. 
Yeah, because it's you have to find a Greek term and then you got to turn it into an English version. <laughs> yeah, because I think brother would have been something like Adelphos, and so can, oh, I can sort see, of have that. I can see I mean, why it wouldn't sound good in English. <laughs> well, we have we we sort of have that already, right? I mean, the city of Philadelphia That's is right. city of brotherly love, which is just Adelphia, which is the plural of siblings or brothers and then yeah. phil phila as the the root for love right so so i'm like i don't know we philadelphia is like a city so you could probably do a takeoff on that right <laughs> exactly the the, the phil could have their own philadelphia <laughs> the philadelphics i don't know that sounds oh, terrible i was like i don't know that sounds terrible like sounds like an acapella group oh gosh yeah. I was like, well, for this reason, I can imagine this is why they went with the the the, I, the Roman term. Kind of makes it, sense. Yeah, it's it's very hard to translate Greek, but it's fun to try. And so I would challenge anybody who thinks they can uh, find a, a better term to uh, to do so, and then let me know because I'm yeah. very curious. Like, if you have a better term, please <laughs> tell me, and then tell John, and then we can go yeah. to the Panhellenic Council, the national one, and say, hey, we're gonna redo this for you. I hate to break it to y'all, but you've been doing it wrong for 150 years. <laughs> so, okay. You said you, I think you're the first person who I have talked to so far who has done a post back of any kind. Can you just sort of explain for everyone what a post back is and what it looks like for classics? Yeah. So a post back laureate program is usually a one-year certificate program. And, uh, you know, they're offered at different, you know, research universities. Um, ones that I know of are, you know, UCLA, the one I went to. Penn has one. Um, Iowa State, I believe, has one. So they're, they're out there. Uh, they're not very common. They're not common, I think, because they are, you, you have to pay for them. They're not uh, funded. Um, so it is kind of a chunk, a big chunk of change. I had to, I had to dole out for that one. But again, it's a one-year program, and in classics, it's basically a year to just study Greek and Latin and just completely immerse yourself in it. And, you know, they encourage you to take other classes in, you know, history, archaeology, and basically whatever your interests are. But the focus is on learning and developing your, your Greek and Latin. And the point of a post is usually to be a bridge year between your undergrad and a PhD program. And that's basically what I did. And thinking back, I've basically been in school since 2007. I've been in college since 2007. So I went BA to MA to post back to PhD. <laughs> so that's, um, I guess that's kind of a traditional route, but also that's becoming not a traditional route too. I can, I can think of plenty of folks who are starting their PhD programs in their 40s and they're kind of returning to ancient history or classics. And so you know, this year I had at UCLA was just, it was a hard year. <laughs> I was taking four, four language classes at a time uh, every quarter. I took a grad seminar, a grad Greek seminar on Xenophon. And that, let me tell you, that was just, I didn't, I didn't think I was ready. And my advisor at, at UCLA, he's like, oh, it'll be good for you. And I thought, famous last words. And then, so I did it and it was, it was, it was a, a real challenge. Um, but I think I came out for the better on the other side, which is which is nice. <laughs> and uh, I really do think that if you're interested in pursuing a PhD, you really do have to, at this point, the way PhD programs are structured, you do have to demonstrate competency in Greek and Latin. 
as well as French and German and, or Italian or some other uh, modern languages. And so it really will prepare you, I think, is it's safe to say. As much as I kind of hated it at the time, <laughs> it, it, was, it was good for me. And I would, not, I would not be able to be in where I am in my PhD program without that formative experience. Yeah. And I think that's really awesome. I remember when I was probably a junior by then, uh, I had some stuff going on along the way during my college years, which made it really hard to take uh, the ancient languages. And then I got lazy and I had some leftover, very handy AP French credit that I'd transferred over. So basically I ended up with this really unique situation where I transferred in the language, so I didn't actually need to take any languages to graduate from college because the requirement was just transferred in. So then I was like, wow, well, now nothing's forcing me to sit down and take a language that's very difficult. So I ended up taking like a semester of ancient Greek, but then I had other things. And then I sacrificed my languages for a chance to study abroad three times in college. So I chose travel over language, which for most people, they'd be like, fine. No, everyone wants to travel. You travel, go do it. Yeah, I was like, sure. But in hindsight, I'm like, well, yeah, it's great. I got to travel and I don't regret it at all. I love my travel experiences and everyone I met. But also, yeah, I did. I like shot myself in the foot regarding going on in classics. So by the time I, I had that conversation with my advisor, he was very much like, you know, I don't know if you are thinking about going into grad school for classics, but I'm just here to tell you that you are not going to have the requirements. You're not going to have the languages. I'm really sorry. So, you know, this is the time where you should tell me yes or no, if you're thinking about going on, because we need to realistically sit down and think about, you should probably do like a two-year post back at this point. And I was like, and uh, okay, what does that entail? Where do I go? So he kind of sat me down and we went through the list of schools that do offer postbacks in classics. And I just thought to myself, am I really going to fork over 30000 a year for two years to take language classes? That seems such an artificial barrier to put up in a young person's way. Yeah. You know, and at that point I was like, well, I've, I've devoted several years of my life to this area of study. Like this would really suck. I think I want to go to grad school, but I don't really want to do this if it means getting into just an MA program. So was there a situation where you might have been able to get into a PhD program without doing the post back? Or was it like a, you absolutely needed it, needed it, and there's no way you could sort of fudge your way through and take the languages as you're starting your PhD program? Yeah, I think it's, that's hard to say. I think the advice that I was given was, you know, John, you're not going to get into a program. You, you haven't taken enough years. You know, at the time when I applied, How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When I was doing my master's, I had a two years of Latin and one year of Greek, which that's probably not enough to get you into a PhD program. And so doing that year at UCLA, it was like, if you do that, that will get you. That's your stepping stone, basically. And so I took a chance on that advice, that expensive advice. And it, you know, it happened to work out for me. But you know, I think it's possible that if you are interested in archaeology, classics, history, anthropology, whatever it might be, if you don't have those languages, there may be programs out there that put less emphasis or don't have any requirements for languages. Um, typically, archaeology uh, is good for that, depending on the type of archaeology that you want to do. But I, I do know that that's um, a lot of European universities are starting programs like that now, where it's like there's no Greek or Latin requirements. It's just you're here to do archaeology or whatever. Um, so, you know, it is possible, I think. But at the current state, you have to have at least a little bit of, and it's measured in years, which is kind of a strange idea because at this point I've been studying Greek and Latin for 10 years, but I haven't been doing it like every single day, all day, <laughs> you know, that's why the post back is so useful because it's forcing you to, to be on top of that five days a week, at least <laughs> it was more like seven to be honest for a whole year. But yeah, I think when you're applying to PhD programs, you really have to do your research on the programs and to see what's out there. For sure. And and this is kind of great because you are a grad student. So in a way, you have more hands-on experience than this than any professors probably would recently, at least. When looking for the post-bac program that would have fit you, I know you mentioned that they're only at a couple of schools. It's not just something that you could go to any university and be like, hi, let me do this, which kind of just contributes to those artificial barriers that really get at the whole heart of the accessibility issue to this subject matter, to 
these fields. Just off the top of your head, would you say most of these postbacs are offered at the top institutions in the country for classics? Yeah, I think that's that's a safe bet there. They're going to be at research universities. So they're going to be big universities with big departments that have a lot of faculty, basically. So, you know, the where I did my undergrad, there were two Greek teachers and two Latin teachers, and that's it. That's not enough people to run an entire postback program. UCLA, they have like 30 faculty, right? So they, you know, they have the, the person power to handle a lot of students, grad students, undergrads, postbacks, master students, right? Everyone. So um, yeah, typically your your large state universities will have postback programs. Yeah. So if you're about to graduate from undergrad or if you somehow got a master's and didn't need the languages, but you want to go into a PhD program, uh, either way, if you're somebody who needs the language, then how can we make it better? How can we make it easier? How do we take down some of these access barriers because what if you're like hey I have certain skills I'm really good at certain things for whatever reason standardized testing is not your jam like it's not mine like I'm a terrible standardized test taker I will tell you I'll be the first one to tell you like I was really scared to apply to grad schools in the U.S. because I knew that they would require the GRE and I knew I was just going to like get a terrible score and I'm like well I don't think that's going to be good enough if they're looking at that I know that things are moving away from looking at your test scores. It's like a comprehensive way of evaluating people, but I know it's still a required component as of now. And also, yeah, the the languages and say I, I don't have the money to do a post back. So how do we make it easier? Because it just seems so hard to get to where you want to go if you get all these stop signs in your face where no, you need a post back because you don't have the languages. Oh, you don't have money too bad for you. Stuff like that. You know, how do we make that better? Because I'm always looking for ways to take down artificial barriers that we keep putting up for people. Yeah. And that's a, that's a big problem. It's something I encountered along my journey, my academic journey as well. I had a professor from a university I will not mention say to my face, literally, you will not make it in the PhD program at my university because you don't have the languages. And I was like, oh, okay, nice talking to you. See you never. And uh, <laughs> I do what I can to not talk to that person. So yeah, it, it's it's a very real problem. This uh, kind of elite eliteness, this attitude of the, this is the ivory tower. This is literally the ivory tower that people talk about. This uh, you can't enter because you're not qualified type of thing. And so I find it incredibly rewarding and really critical to my kind of academic persona is to kind of communicate the ancient world, or at least the the stuff that I do in a way that folks can understand and that people can engage with. And, you know, what would you say are the best ways to get involved if you know you're a person who you like classics, you like mythology, sure, you definitely don't want to go to school for it and you don't really want to do that much academic research, but you're just, you, you have a, a passing interest, you know, you're, you're like, okay, these people are, are chill. I, I support what they're doing. I like what they're doing. Uh, I'll happily listen to them talk about what they're doing. I just don't want to do it myself. You know, what would you say are like some of the best things that people like that could do to help us out if they're clearly not going to join us? You know, what's the argument for great, that's totally fine. You don't need to join us. But hey, if you like what we're doing, here's how you can help us. Here's how you can support us. Yeah, so there's different levels of commitment that you could uh, that you could do, right? So I think 
if you're just a casual learner and you just are curious about topical things or maybe there's a, a new movie that came out that has an ancient theme and you're kind of curious about you know is it accurate or is it you know how how true are they trying to be i volunteer with a with an organization called the save ancient studies alliance and this is a nonprofit organization that was started about a year almost a year ago now and our mission is basically to make ancient studies accessible to the broadest possible audience and really to inspire a younger generation to take up the reins and feel like classics is is theirs for them to 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 take on and it's not just uh i should correct myself it's not just classics it's archaeology it's history it's languages it's not just the mediterranean which oftentimes when you hear ancient history people automatically think greece and rome we're talking about mesopotamia we're talking about egypt we're talking about ancient india ancient china um, medieval europe right it's 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 we're trying to do it all sasa puts on different live events uh, every month sometimes you know they are uh, book club meetings where you know an, an, an author who has published a you know a, a, a publicly accessible fun kind of fiction novel about ancient egypt or whatever and you know, we could just you, you just get together and you talk about the book, right? That's that's easy, right? You don't have to you don't have to try that hard. Um, we also have uh, at Sasa we're we're really investing our, a lot of time in archaeo gaming. So there's a lot of video games being made in the past couple of years that have ancient themes and scenes and plots and and lots of fun stuff. And so it's it's fun to pick apart <laughs> all that stuff that we see. And you know, is that is that accurate, right? Or, um, you know, I think it's kind of fun to just leave video games fantasy. That's my own opinion. But, you know, there's there's something to be said about the presentation of the ancient world. Um, and so, you know, we I think it's maybe once a month or so that we have different uh, guest speakers come in and Sasa moderates a discussion basically about a particular video game that has an ancient uh, content. Um, so, you know, if you're just, again, if you're casual and you just want to show up and listen, like you're, you're more than welcome to, to attend our stuff. And uh, there's more information at our website, which is saveancientstudies.org. And, you know, if you are, if you find yourself with lots of time on your hand and you actually want to be a contributor to the mission of SASA, um, while also at the same time enriching your own knowledge of what's out there, uh, I'm actually the, the team leader of the access team. And our team works on two major projects. One of, one of them is uh, creating an online database of resources that we're, we're compiling of basically all project websites that and um, online texts, uh, museum tours, and, and so forth. And we're trying to compile them all into one giant database and have that publicly accessible to be a one-stop shop for folks to you know, to, to find information about the ancient world. And whether you're a teacher or you're a college student and you gotta, you gotta study for an exam or you're doing research for a paper or something like that, we're gonna kind of keep, keep all this stuff in one place for y'all to, to access. So we're, we're always looking for volunteers to help out with that project to track down uh, online resources. Another thing that we're doing is, uh, and this is kind of, I guess, if you're more interested in formal study, uh, we have a also another growing database of where to study ancient studies. So we're finding every major, every department, every program, 
that offers something related to ancient studies, broadly defined. And we're starting off with mostly U.S. and Canadian universities, but we're going to branch out into uh, European universities and so forth, too. So we're going to have a massive database of where to study uh, with formal programs. So again, we're looking always for volunteers to help out uh, with, with tracking all that information down. And um, oh, I should also add, there's another really fun one that, I, that I'm involved with. Uh, so SAFSA, every summer, uh, we have these text in translation groups that meet uh, sometimes once a week um, for maybe a month or two. And they're topically themed, led by a grad student or early career scholar. And it's all texts in translation. And so you, you do, you read up on some ancient documents in translation and you get together and you just talk about it. Again, there's, there's no grade, there's no papers to write. It's a very low key affair. <laughs> and and it, it's uh, another opportunity for you to kind of do what you like, which is read about ancient stuff. And then, you know, you get into a discussion with someone who's a expert, so to speak, in, in the topic. And it's just a way to kind of continually learn about the ancient world uh, and, and keep up your own interests. And so, yeah, look forward to announcements in probably April or May about our next summer reading groups. And we had, a, we had one back in January just as an experiment for a shorter, uh, shorter period ones. And we had, we had pretty good attendance at those too. So we might do it. We might end up doing it two times a year. So, and again, these are all free. Everything that SASA does is free. So it's so that it's accessible to everyone. Yeah. And I think that's really great to finally have some entity out there that's like, hey, we're not going to just like stubbornly paywall you. You want to read the Epic of Gilgamesh? Like here, pay us $20 and then we'll give you a a translated copy. I'm like, no, I don't want to pay 20 bucks. Like (laughs) I will just go to the darkest corners of the internet. No, I won't. But um, the the expression still stands. I will go to the darkest corners of the internet to find my free stuff. (laughs) But, but, you know, ideally we don't, we don't want to make it harder, right? We don't want people to have to work really, really hard to get what should be really, really simple information. And this is, I, I, this is why organizations like SASA are so important just in terms of ease of access. But also, yeah, literally, if you want to learn, we're here. We'll teach you. Just come, come, come in the door. Like, please. And it's, it's just a wonderful change to see from essentially what the analogy I, I, I give the fields usually are just they, they slam doors in your faces and say, well, Sorry. Oh, well, if you have this, this, and this, and this, sure, sure, sure. Come on in. But uh, otherwise, bye. Um, right. I don't have time yeah. for you if you don't, uh, if you don't have this or that. Yeah, that's, it's sad, but true. It happens. And so, you know, our, we exist to hopefully counteract that, that all the, uh, you know, the SAS is run by basically a, a, a horde of volunteers, grad students, and uh, early career scholars, and you know, there's a personal investment that we have, right? We see our fields dying as we are trying to get in. <laughs> so that's not like a, uh, a great um, thing to observe as you're trying to get started. There's a perception out there that ancient studies don't matter. And so we really feel committed that it's our duty to turn that around. Um, so, you know, we're, yeah, we will, we will work with everyone and take everyone 
um, with us along the way. So I love that Sasa does Archeo gaming because anyone who has listened to this podcast by now knows I am very, very on the <laughs> Archeo gaming wagon. Uh, our podcast, our organization here at the Osmandias Project is also doing our own uh, Archeo gaming events as well. I believe there's a there's a lot of crossover there, which is really, really cool just to see the, the interest and, and just see people excited about it. But with video games being so popular... Do you think that that's the future that's that's going to save the ancient studies? Is, is it like the one thing that we know can hook people who have never heard of the ancient fields or classics? Um, or is it just like, a, do you see it like a, a passing trend just because, you know, video games are popular now and especially with the pandemic, people are just like playing them now since you can't leave your house. Um, you know, are we are we going to find something better? That, that may save us uh, if we, as the leader of the access team, like, do you see maybe if you break down more barriers in other ways, uh, would that be a better catalyst? Just if you make it easier, more people will just do it. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really great questions. I think Archeo gaming is still relatively young as a, a subfield. Uh, let's, let's say, you know, I think Assassin's Creed kind of started the big push to, to really look at the representation uh, and uh, portrayal of, of ancient stuff in video games. I mean, there's way earlier games like Age of Empires. I was a huge fan of that when I was a kid and uh, Civilization um, one through six now, I think. <laughs> so think of the target audience, right? Those are probably kids ages, what, like eight to eight to 18, you know, through high school, maybe plenty of college kids play it too. But, you know, I think, if young people, it's about exposure, right? Because when you're living in America, you don't just like wake up and walk outside and see the Roman forum out your out, out of your door, right? You see probably a grid of suburbs, <laughs> maybe some skyscrapers, uh, but th- those don't have like a, an ancient connection. So in America, we have less exposure. So I think video games are very easy way, I think, to turn kids on to just what, what's out there. Um, and I think it's also important that it's not just Greek and Roman stuff. I, I, you know, I mentioned this before, but in, in, there's tons of stuff with ancient China and ancient India, ancient Mesopotamia, right? There's, these are lots of other cool places that, that, have, that have stories that can be um, depicted, I think, in, in really cool ways. So, you know, whether or not it's the magic bullet that's going to save Ancient studies, I'm not sure that it's that, but it's something and it's visual and it's tangible in a way because you're, I mean, you're not holding an artifact, but you're, you're manipulating the, the, the environment, right? Um, and I think, and I don't know anything about predicting the future either. I'm, I'm a historian, not a, not a futurist, but, uh, you know, I think virtual reality stuff, I think there's lots of potential there too. Um, so, you know, the, the second virtual reality uh, software or, you know, whatever is able to get really good, I can imagine reconstructions of ancient Athens or, you know, or, you know, these places and, oh, you can't go study abroad, well, put on your VR headset and take a walk through the, the Agora, right? And, you know, I, I can imagine, I can imagine that being a really cool way to get people interested. Yeah. So, I mean, Archeo Gaming is just one element of combining the ancient studies with pop cultural things, which is 
awesome. Mm-hmm. I love it. I'm I'm a gamer myself. But, you know, in terms of like the other media side for people who don't call themselves video gamers, most people are exposed to the ancient world or mythology in some way through books, film, TV. And right now we have and they're getting better, but we have some movies and, and, and shows that, yeah, they're they're set in or based on the ancient world or they involve mythology of some kind these aren't always the most accurate are they yeah they there's a lot of i mean it's 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 artistic media right so you're going to have a lot of uh you know artistic license <laughs> that that the creators are going to exert which is it's their prerogative i suppose uh, but at the same time we do a disservice to people who are maybe less critical of what they're consuming in that if you depict it in a certain way, they're going to, they're going to leave thinking, Oh, well, that was, that's how that, that becomes their, their imaginary, right? You're filling a void with your interpretation. And unless you research it more on your own, which most people aren't going to do, and that's okay. Unless you do that, that image is going to stick. Right. So for all of us, when we think of the second, I say, think of an ancient, Greek statue, you're immediately going to picture some white marble, broken arms, and it's going to be, you know, that that's what you're going to imagine. The ancient reality, however, that we know of from studying archaeology is that most, if not all, marble was painted in very colorful ways, right? And so how do we, the next time we make a movie about ancient Greece or Rome, for example, if there's white statues in the background, something's wrong. I think, you know, it's it, at this point, it has, be, it has become so well uh, documented in modern news media outlets that there's no excuse anymore, I don't think. And so we'll see what this, uh, you know, this Cleopatra movie that's been, you know, um, announced. We'll see. We'll see what they, <laughs> what they come up with. But, uh, you know, I, I think... Yeah, there's, it's time that we, we correct some of the stuff that we do know, and, but while still allow artists to, to practice their art, I suppose. Um, so, I mean, these are two industries that are just notoriously bad at talking to each other, right? I mean, classicists, we hate doing out, <laughs> we hate doing outreach. And I can't stress enough how much we hate like talking about ourselves and trying to yeah. explain who we are. Um, and, and, you know, the, the entertainment industry is it's, it's a whole different thing. I mean, they just kind of run and do whatever. And uh, sometimes they try to be more accurate. Sometimes they're just like, no. No, we don't need that. And I would love to see an accurate representation of one of these ancient cultures just once. I mean, some do better than others, but I mean, I can't remember the last time I saw something about Egypt where Egypt was just like wasn't in ruin. Why is ancient Egypt always just portrayed in ruin? Like you see the pyramids and then you'll see they're they're like worn and, and old and they're covered in sand. And I'm like... Well, if you're living in ancient Egypt, they're not going to be old and covered in sand. They're probably going to have that nice, shiny, limestone-ish covering. It's got the gold point. Why yep. is it in ruin? Um, you know, why is this temple have buried that that wouldn't be accurate unless, you know, you're trying to be Cleopatra. And and then, you you know, you're looking back at um, 
pyramid of khufu i don't know <laughs> so you know one i've just straight observations i always think of are egypt is always in ruin and then when you yeah. try to even do something that we would consider like an update or more modern one of those things i can think of is um like just more race, racially diverse casting. Uh, yeah. I know that the Troy miniseries on Netflix, Fall of the City, it got so much flack because they were because they cast a black Achilles, a black mm-hmm. Patroclus, a black Zeus, and people were like, "No, no, 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 no! What do you like? No, he he can't be black." And I'm like, "Well." I mean, who said he can't be black? I mean, personally, right. I mean, weren't the gods always traveling to? Ethiopia right like that was their spot to go so I'm like but he could be I don't know they're traveling to Africa all the time they're having children that's what they do um so you know (laughs) if people can't even handle just like racially diverse casting I can't imagine the reaction for you know you put a Parthenon in a movie that's like completely painted up the way it's supposed to be. Oh my God. I think, you know, anarchy would rain down. People would lose their minds collectively. You know, oh my God, it's painted. It's horrendous. Like, what are they doing? So, you know, how do we do a better job then of us as a field and industry? How do we talk to Hollywood and say, here's how we can help prep you to put something accurate, like a fully painted Parthenon in your film or TV show without like freaking everyone out and then getting scared by react like the reaction of inevitably all the people who hate that and then get scared and then lose money and then say nope we're never going to do that again which would be a mistake i mean i think at this point in our culture people want accurate things and i don't think it's bad to show them accurate things i mean 300 was entertaining sure we all know the spartans did not wear like leather diapers and they did not all have the same capes and how like no (laughs) Like, give me something accurate, please. I'm ready. We can handle this. Yeah, exactly. And I think 300 was palatable. But the sequel, oh my gosh, that was, I was like screaming at the TV (laughs) when I watched it. Oh my goodness. And and so the, the, the bottom line is that even if we were to tell Hollywood, hey, by the way, the ancient Mediterranean was this like really dynamic, diverse place with lots of different peoples. Even if we did tell them that with compelling arguments and evidence, the reality is they would still choose to portray it how they like. So I think that type of stuff is more of a Hollywood problem. Now, at the same time, though, think about your classes, right? When you were an undergrad, when I was an undergrad, was that type of diversity and color emphasized in your classes or even discussed probably minimally maybe a little bit uh, I'm sure you know if you're studying Homer oh yeah Helios you know he goes and he every night and he goes down to Egypt Ethiopia and he uh, that's where he goes to sleep and it's like okay like that's that was weird moving on you know so like there's these opportunities I think pedagogically to bring up these issues to students and Again, when those students, the idea is that there's a chain reaction that happens. When you learn something, you go off and and continue your life having that new knowledge. That's the whole point of going to a university, I think, is to acquire knowledge and produce knowledge and then to take that knowledge and go do something with it, right? So when we, we like, you know, broadly speaking, the, the, the people who study this stuff, we go out and we're the audience for the future Hollywood productions, and maybe it's our job to raise more of a stink and, you know, critique, critique them openly. 
uh, make it uncomfortable <laughs> for them uh, to let them know that like it's enough, enough is enough. It's stereotypes. What it comes down to is stereotypes, I think. And I think we're getting to a point in society where we're kind of tired of that. Do you think that we should be going and talking to like theater and film departments in schools and saying, hey, we we should have some crossover, like take some of our classes, because maybe if we can get to them early in schools before they're professionals working in the industry, you know, if you have a bunch of theater and film majors taking classics courses, might that help put it into their minds? Hey, I can be creative, but I can also find a way to be creative and be historically accurate. So then by the time they get to the working world, they'd say, hey, I have an idea. I think I want to do this. This is the premise of my movie pilot for my TV show. And guess what? I like they didn't they don't even think about putting in something that's wrong because they learned what was accurate. I think there's something to be said for that. You know, I think it's the cross pollination of of different fields, right? Exposing theater majors to ancient Greek and Latin drama. Like that would be fantastic, right? And, I, and I'm, I'm sure that's already part of their curriculum, but more engagement on that kind of historical level is, again, I'm biased because I'm a history PhD, but uh, you know, I think that it's very valuable that the more people can, can see it and engage with it, the more beneficial it will be for them in how they see the past, but also how they see the present. Because at the end of the day, these rep representations in movies and TV and film and all of that, it's narrative. They are telling a narrative. And so by portraying it in a certain way, even with images, images are a narrative as well. And maybe the narrative is to be different. Maybe that's their goal. And if so, well done, you did it. <laughs> so I never realized I was such a, a free art, freedom of speech, uh, freedom, freedom of artistic expression kind of person. But, you know, I think it's, but again, I'm approaching it from a very like scholarly academic, you know, I want to, I want, I, I, they can make whatever they want. I'm going to analyze it either way. It's the, the side effects though, of those narratives that become problematic for audiences. Um, so again, as you mentioned that, um, that tro uh, Troy uh, on that BBC series that like, yeah, that was a huge controversy. And I'm just sitting over here analyzing the narratives on both sides. And it's really fun. So, and the, the funny thing is like portrayals of gods, because it's like, I never met Zeus, never seen him. How do you know what he looks like? <laughs> so it's a totally open question. And so yeah, like, yeah, it, it looks funny. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's there's also levels to this, right? I mean, for me, I'm like, okay, obviously there is a certain level of artistic license where I'd be like, okay, fine. Clearly that, that very much is up to interpretation. But then there's certain things that I just find like completely like, no, if you took a basic history or geography class, you would know this. I mean, I think the, the, one of the biggest things that gets me is every time I watch the Brad Pitt Troy, do you remember that first scene when they show Sparta, when they go when they go over to Sparta to introduce Menelaus and Paris and Helen and, and Hector because they're all there celebrating their peace treaty? And the very first shot you see when it pulls up Sparta on the screen is a harbor with boats and water. And I go, does anyone realize that Sparta is in the Peloponnese? It's completely landlocked to get to water. You need to go like 50 miles in any direction. So I'm like, why is there a harbor? This is not Sparta. This is not their harbor. They would be literally anywhere else. And like that to me is one of the most egregious things I could possibly have seen ever because I'm like, that's not just creative interpretation. You you can't just like displace a city and put it geographically somewhere new. I mean, how pissed would people be if I just took Athens and was like, you know what? I'm going to put this in the middle of the Gobi Desert. No water. 
like <laughs> what the hell like no right. so it's you know, just it's, ignorance right. Uh, right yeah it's things like that where i'm just like that's something you literally could easily correct but they don't care or they just didn't it didn't occur to them and i'm like oh god oh yeah. all right it hurts us <laughs> it does it hurts me deeply and you're right the uh, i'm glad you mentioned the 300 sequel because themistocles is my boy anyone who knows me knows <laughs> i love the man i want to study just the man cool. obsessed with him and so to, to see what they did to him i'm just like this gives me anxiety yeah. why did you do this to my boy <laughs> oh, i never gosh. i never imagined themistocles as a like young strapping lad I always imagined him as like some older gray beard, <laughs> not riding horseback and jumping on it from ship to ship on horseback. Like I just, wow, they really turned him into something that completely <laughs> violated all of my preconceived notions. How dare I think of him in that way, I guess. <laughs> I, I know, I know what you mean. I mean, well, because when when you when you there aren't that many sources that survive that t- uh, talk about him. There, there's certainly no like comprehensive biography. I mean, you have to find him sprinkled in plenty and um, a couple other sources. Herodotus, but, Plutarch, yeah. yeah, they talk. They have, yeah. He's like sprinkled yeah. in, but like when you when you do read of him, they don't. They always talk about you know his his wisdom, how he's he's a, a statesman. He's very proper and he he's very smart. Yeah, nowhere does do they say he's like young sex symbol because um, we all, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I go in and then I, uh, you know, I'm watching the movie and I'm like, hey, that's Sullivan Stapleton. He's like that big, really nice looking Australian dude who just like just looks like that, you know, beach bod, Thor light, whatever. And then you're like. <laughs> Oh, this is awkward. I'm like, wait, no, I think of him as just like Gandalf type. Wait, what am I doing? I don't know if that's what you're seeing, but like I'm seeing my Themistocles as like Gandalf type. So I'm just like very awkward. I'm like, I don't want to be fantasizing about this person. Like, ew, no, he's not a sex symbol. Stop, stop that right now. Uh, But I mean, I suppose that's not how I see Leonidas either, right? I don't really imagine him to be this young Gerard Butler, very cut sort of figure i mean i guess i do <laughs> i'm never gonna not see gerard butler like screaming in your face like on the poster mo- movie poster you know i think they've they've altered my per- my perception of <laughs> so That's, good job that is the power of film right for some <laughs> historical figures you're very wedded to a certain idea of them and then some you're like i'm happy to let the entertainment industry just completely take over and shape how i see this person entertain me because I, I was like when i'm reading about this man i'm like yeah, i'm sure this man's like this 50 year old gray beard dude whatever like you know they don't live very long back then and, uh, and then yeah you see like 30 year old gerard and you're like oh yes yeah so yeah. <laughs> yeah it's insane but anyway you know i think we're we've covered a lot about what we want to see what we want to do just in terms of getting back to the world of realism Real um world like yeah whatever that is quote unquote and then another quote unquote how how do we do all the things we want when we are losing funding you can't do all these great ideas if you have no money how does one construct this into like a solid enough argument for hey this would benefit everyone this has practical applicability which are like the magic words for anyone with money right um, you got to convince them that it's worthwhile in the short term for sure especially in the long term it, it, it's communication. 
and just being evidence-based in that communication. You know, so it, it seems like from, from your question, it seems like the focus is on universities. Like what can, what can we do? Um, and for somewhere along the way, universities became an external arm of corporate America in terms of like, oh yeah, we're gonna make every entry level position at our corporation require a bachelor's degree. And it's like, mm, do you really need a bachelor's degree to do that entry level thing? Probably not. So there's this preconceived notion that you have to go to college to get a job, which yeah, okay, maybe there's some benefit to that. However, you shouldn't have to get $100,000 in debt to do that, right? And ultimately, what, what that translates to is a, is a defunding or dismantling of academic programs at colleges and universities. Now, the cost of higher education in America is a completely different conversation, and I have thoughts about that. But getting back to how do we, how do we package the, you know, the humanities, ancient studies, broadly speaking, and how do we sell that uh, and make people want to invest their time and energy into it? I think it falls back onto corporate America. Uh, and again, I guess I'm a little biased in this uh, outlook, but look at, uh, look at our leaders, look at our corporate leaders, look at our political elite. We expect the best of them. And yet many, many of them are less than perfect. <laughs> and I'm not saying they have to be perfect, but I think one of the benefits of studying ancient stuff is there is a grounding in, or at least as I try to teach it, I should caveat that. There is a human component uh, that needs to be emphasized. And it is through studying the people of the past that we learn about ourselves. We can treat them as a menu of sorts, of decision-making, of leadership styles, of, of uh experiences of joy and sorrow and everything in between, right? Learning about those things enriches the person. I believe that people who graduate college should be able to, of course, read, write, and orally communicate at a basic or proficient level, but also they should be good people. They should be people who are, who have a commitment to ethical decision-making to evidence-based practices, to being able to empathize with fellow people. I believe that ancient studies, broadly defined, is a magnificent gateway into that human element uh, that I would like all of my undergraduate students to leave university with, about how to, how to look at the world, how to interact with different people, and just understand that uh, your decisions have consequences and there are rights. I guess there's a, a, at a basic level, there's right and wrong ways to do things. Um, and so, you know, I'm not saying we should all be philosophy majors now, but, you know, I think there's something to be said for the thoughts of ancient folks, right? And then on top of that, looking at how those ancient philosophies and beliefs and worldviews influenced the very people who created this so-called modern world, right? And for me, it goes back to the enlightenment, the so-called enlightenment, right? Where all of a sudden the lights came on and they had these great ideas. False. They were reviving lots of other old ideas, I believe. 
and they they put their own kind of modernist twist on it and then we have capitalism right so for all it's good and ill right capitalism has its drawbacks but also some benefits i suppose and so let's stop and think about those things and and see where we are and where do we want to go right and i'm not saying we need to recreate euclidean or pythagorean <laughs> philosophy but you know we can we can take all the good parts of that and we can shape our own world, I think, um, using some of those good ideas and putting our own needs uh, at the forefront um, in, in how we become the kind of crafters of our world. Yeah. And I mean, obviously, I, I ask I usually start by asking from a very like university perspective, just because that's where most kids hopefully are going to go and then going to try to yeah. enter the job market that way. Um, and. So for, for non-university organizations, kind of like SASA, like the podcast even, uh, you know, we are organizations that are trying to also foster this love of the ancient world, this interest in it. And we would love to help people earn their degrees uh, in, in the ancient fields. So, but it's, it's um, you know, for, for something like SASA, it's volunteer run. Um, it's, it's a nonprofit, you know, and NGOs, they, they run off donations. So, yeah. you know, it's not like you're rolling in the dough, neither are no, we. No. Um, There's no dough. It's asset. Right. <laughs> right <now>. So, so <laughs> it's like, how then if universities are kind of hamstrung due to, to politics institution, I mean, there's just so much at play that goes behind how universities get their money. And a lot of it, yes, is through donations from alumni well unfortunately for us uh we rarely have alumni who make it rich and then can contribute 90 million dollars for things like you know mizzou just got a new 90 million dollar stadium for the football oh. team and i'm like oh okay that's awesome our priorities yeah. are 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 good there <laughs> yeah and i think and i mean that was a couple of years ago but i mean i think or last year late last year like end of 2020 they got a 10 million dollar donation for just a new exercise room in the stadium like a new pump room and i'm like Oh, okay. That's great. I'm sure that their state-of-the-art stadium needed another state-of-the-art room, just one room alone. Sure. But my whole department just cut a bunch of funding. And so instead of being able yeah. to accommodate like the usual 10 grad students for ancient Mediterranean studies, they were like, hi, we have five spots. So funding is a lot more competitive and uh, sorry, only, you know, we can only take five. And I'm like, um yeah no shit our field is dying when you cannot pay your grad students so you know what can organizations like sasa and like the osmanius project do you know it's it's a different game because we don't have those same funding barriers but we have a whole different set of funding barriers so how does something like sasa which is a nonprofit, go forward and then how does something like the Osmandius Project. I mean, we are an LLC. We are a for-profit business. So our funding sources are going to be different as well. But, you know, is, is there common ground here where we can try to find a, a line there that works to sort of help people at the non-university level? Yeah. SASA, the Save Ancient Studies Alliance, part of our mission is to reverse this downward trend in department funding. And I'll be, I'll be the first to admit the field, broadly speaking, we've kind of done it to ourselves. We have not communicated what we do in an intelligent way that's accessible to broad audiences. And also, we're also competing against this idea that 
higher education is job training, that you need to go to college to get a, an engineering degree because it, it'll get you a job. I'm sure there's plenty of underemployed engineers out there um, and, and uh, psychology majors and business majors out there. It doesn't matter what major you are. You can, you can be underemployed or unemployed just as much as a history major or a classics major. <laughs> so, um, and again, study after study shows that, you know, uh, over the course of a career, history majors make more money sometimes than psychology majors or business majors uh, in their median uh, career income. So like, it's just a fallacy that doing liberal arts is not worth your time. And this is where the, the target audience becomes a little bit different than college students, right? Because so, college students, once you're there, you pretty much have an idea of what you want to study. And it's going to take something dramatic to change that. Um, so we think that it is younger, even younger than college students. That That is the, the real target now. So get turning kids on to, to ancient stuff in elementary school and high school, right? So that uh, they know that it's a part of the choice when they do go to university, if they choose that, you know, it's not just business psychology and engineering when you go to high, when you go to college. Right. And I think that's what a lot of under, uh, high school students think that they have to get into. And by, by exposing them to it at, at younger ages, they can hopefully foster a love or maybe uh, an interest in it. So that when they do get to college, if that's where they're going to go, then they can uh, possibly pursue that. And because again, at the end of the day, the the, the ten million dollar donations for workout rooms, though they aren't going to the classics department because that's the funding priority of the of the donors, right? So if we can get, it, it, and it's a numbers game, and it's not something that's going to happen overnight, and so it's going to take a generational shift. And when people go, if and when people go through these programs, then their priorities will be on rewarding uh, and giving back uh, to those programs that they came through. So it's a it's a tall order. I'll be the first to admit that. And it seems like we're going upstream, swimming upstream here. But we, the people who do humanities, broadly speaking, uh, ancient studies included, right? It's our turn to kind of step up a little bit and be more inviting, I think and, and uh, break down some of these barriers that we've self-imposed um, to, uh, to bring in more people, which it, if you don't have butts and chairs, you get defunded. That's basically what happens. Um, at least that's our, our perception of the situation. Uh, you know, it's going to take a lot of folks and SASA is, has a lot of really great people who just want to do the best that they can do. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really cool to be working with them and, and to have met them and be united on this, um, on this endeavor together. So hopefully we can change some young lives so that it'll do a paradigm shift later. Yeah. Well, and then I would even say, well, one, uh, it's great that the organization exists to help people for sure, for sure. Uh, and it's, and I'm really excited that, uh, you know, we're doing something very similar. So I'm, I'm glad that there's a lot of crossover uh, and that, you know, we're able to sort of work together to further our collective goals uh, for sure. Yeah. Cause I think, you know, more organizations kind of banding together to work toward a collective goal is going to be really important, especially since there aren't many outside of uh, the university setting to, to do this kind of work. So I think that's really important, but also, you know, I think one thing that I've been thinking about a lot 
lately at least and I, I my opinion may change on this who knows next week I have no idea <laughs> um it's very changeable but I think one of the questions I'm asked most by people who aren't in the field are hey I'd, I'd like to get involved but I don't have the bandwidth to do much beyond just sort of casually check you guys out like like how do how do I help you even though I have no time to devote to actually like actually helping you and what I've started to realize is I I tell people now okay you want to help us you either didn't go through college to to study what we're studying and so now you're completely in a different field that's great um you know so I, I tell people well if you're in a completely other field if you somehow have a measure of financial stability um, that I think everyone in our fields kind of worry about, oh no, am I going to get a job? How am I going to get a job? How am I going to pay off all this stuff? And I say, if you have any extra money at all and you feel comfortable, you can just turn that into a donation and donate to organizations like ours or or a school or something. Mm -hmm. Um, Reach out to find a grad student and say, hey, I think your topic is great. I really like this topic. I have, you know, an extra $2,000 laying around. Can I help fund your research? Because I'm like, there's plenty of ways, I think, to get involved with archaeology, with ancient studies. Uh, and, you know, I've, I've become, I think, over the, over the last year, a big proponent of if you want to be involved, you don't have to be the archaeologist yourself. I mean, right. that's that's a lot of years in school and training that you don't have time for. Great. If you fund a grad student, you, you're, you're going to be like one of the first people they thank for sure. Like you are literally helping them do their research. So you're if you if it's like a I want to help, but also I kind of want credit thing. Yeah. Like if you have money, like donate it to a grad student nine times out of ten. I can't think of any grad student who wouldn't say hey, if you, you've always wanted to come watch a dig, do a dig, if you're going to fund my program, I will invite you to the country I'm doing my dig in and you can come see the work being done. Like, to me, that's just an easy way to involve somebody who kind of wants credit for doing something good to help out, um, mm-hmm. but also just to spark that interest, right? I mean, if I'm doing field work you know um in a foreign country and someone just wants to travel and see this stuff yeah fund me you can come on the plane with me i will show you what i'm doing talk you through it and at the end you can just get a great old pat on the back when i cite you in all of my thank yous and acknowledgements and i don't know put you in my book and so you could say i was in a book i did this thing i funded this grad student this is my new best friend because we found a coffin together like i think Right now we're stuck in like a, if you want to do any of that, if you want to go to a, you know, be on a dig, if you want to do anything, I I think like the overarching feeling is I have to be that person, which makes it really hard. And I think, you know, we can have a conversation about, okay, well, yeah, you know, if it's too late, theoretically, quote unquote, for, for us to get to you early in schools, I think that would be a good avenue to to pursue as well just get to people who aren't going to be in the field and we've already reconciled that but hey yeah you want some credit right (laughs) you have some money lying around you 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 making that nice paycheck over there yeah exactly and the the ancient uh the ancient parallel that i always think about when i think of like public donations is you know the uh, ancient greek euergetism which is this uh public benefactions 
if you're a rich guy in the city or whatever, and you got a bunch of money and you donate a bunch of money to the festival that's being held in the city, uh, or you, you, you pay to fund part of the army or something, the city like commissions a statue for you and they put it up in the public square to like remember you for forever. Why don't we do that anymore? <laughs> you know, like, why can't we, uh, why can't we convince some, some wealthy people to donate some money to a classics program? And then, you know, we'll, we'll tap into our interdisciplinary uh, avenues and we'll get people to sculpt a sculpture and we'll put it up in the quad and it'll be there forever. Right. Like that. I don't know. we got to bring that back. Maybe. I don't know, <laughs> but we got to paint the statue though. Remember? Yeah. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think there's just so many good ways to do that. And I mean, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we're also a lot of these fields historically have run on that like patronage style funding mechanism, right. Where just a bunch of like rich people are like, Hey, this is my hobby throws money at said thing and then you know then you and then they want to control the... it and then they want to right, they might get their noses it. all in it yeah right and then and then it takes away a lot of the freedom you have as a scholar though especially if you have one rich person coming in and saying well i'm gonna fund your whole thing so now you have to listen to me you know and one of the things i spend a lot of my time thinking about also is you know how do we move away from relying on this patronage style system that still exists for some fields more than others. Um, I can think archaeology for sure runs a lot on that. Um, yeah. and, and Egyptology as well. Um, but, you know, I'm not saying we need to completely do away with the system because <laughs> let me be very clear. We will be very happy to take your money. Like we are very, very happy. If you want to give us money, just we'll, we'll take it. Great. Lexi um, will but, commission a statue for you. <laughs> right. But, but I'm, you know, so, but, so my argument usually is like, yes, we will still take your money. Don't be afraid. If you're like a rich donor, you will still have that level of control. If that's what you, you're like, I want to do this. But what I'm saying, you know, with this argument mostly is we just need to not solely rely on that funding model because I feel like we only rely on either schools and government money or rich people so I kind of think of this with after all my experience working in politics since I graduated mm -hmm. I think of it as like the almost like the, the Bernie Sanders style movement of small dollar donations right yeah. where he it's never been done until Bernie did it but then like all these small dollar donations started coming in and I'm like the average was like what $17 so I'm like so if you have young professionals or even mid-age professionals but not just rich people who've had a lifetime to get rich but like yeah if you take a bunch of 30 year olds who are all young lawyers and each 10 of them contribute a thousand dollars that's uh you know a lot of money look at that that's a small grant from one person usually historically so you know and you know that's how that's to, you spread the credit right like you can literally get a bunch of small donations make up a, a large sum of money and then that's just more people to thank uh more people right. you bring in who you make to feel like they're actively helping and contributing even if they only gave you know say five hundred dollars hey you're still going to be mentioned in my thank you for my dissertation you'll be mentioned in my first book whatever blah 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 we'll list you as somebody who cares about saving humanities like we'll give you credit. Like, that's not an issue. We want to desperately give more people credit for helping us out. Um, I, th I think yeah. it's just people don't realize that. If someone gave me $500 to <laughs> write my dissertation, yeah, I would send you birthday cards. I would send you flowers every month. I would... <laughs> 
I would express my gratitude. And I, I just think, yeah, that's, that's probably not going to happen uh, for me. Uh, so that's okay. That's okay. Uh, I'm just trying to get done with my degree. So uh, I, I think the issue with that is that it, it takes a lot of effort to, because what the universities do is they go to the, the wealthy alumni and they say, Hey, I know how much your net worth is. How about you kick back a, you know, a million, a million, just an easy million to the university. Right. And they're like, oh, okay. So like the amount of time they spent to get the big ones is less than they would if they had spent a lot of time to get a bunch of little. And so, but that's where Bernie Sanders love that guy. He did, he was a genius, right. When it came to that, uh, the, you know, just donate a dollar. Right. And we can like, it's, it's a movement. Right. And I, I was surprised by how many of my friends actually contribute not not just to him but just to like other causes like the, the animal shelter and like other other things right I'm, I'm always surprised when it's like yeah I, did, I gave 35 bucks to the animal shelter last week I was like oh my gosh like I feel bad now that I didn't do that <laughs> right so yeah I think that's a that's an interesting way to to publicly fund the the humanities is um, small dollar donations who knew you know Working in politics has offered me a really rare and different insight into different ways to fund it. Because, I mean, politics, what is it? It's 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 just a game of people looking for money so they can run for their next thing or do the next thing. So, you know, I figured, you know, if I'm using my practical abilities here to contribute <laughs> to the ancient world, you know, one of the things that I think I can bring is a perspective on funding. Because I see so many, there's no right way to fund anything in politics. So I'm like, so why can't it be the same in the humanities. I mean, you just have to be brave enough to create the system to put the idea out there and just be like, hey, this might be a good idea. This might be a good idea. Um, and if you can get enough buy-in, you could really start something. So um, yeah, I, I just, I remember being shocked when, when Bernie had so much success and I just said, well, that's a pretty good model. I wonder if that could transfer over to something else like the humanities, but uh, you know, it does take a lot of time and effort and it doesn't happen overnight, but um, right. You know, and grad just, students don't have time, the free time to, to be, uh, you know, asking for, for money. Right. And we the don't fact have... that we have to ask for money is also an, indica an indication of something's wrong. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is awkward. I mean, but this is why I'm like organizations like the Osmandis Project and like SASA, I think could be valuable partners in, in terms of, um, you know, promoting that message. But I mean, I understand as well that, you know, both that organization and ours are made up of like literally grad students and people who just like don't have time because they're working. So, you know, yeah. you, you, you would have to find more people, more time or whatever. And the, the uncomfortable part is you, you do actually need to go like beg people for money to even help you start and get to a place where you could have the manpower to then talk about moving away from this patronage style system. So I understand the challenges there, but you know, these are just like long-term thoughts that I have about um, funding. Cause I just, I spend so much time thinking about how, how do we get money and like stop this uncomfortable hi we're we're poor can you give us money please like it's just so uncomfortable for for me to think about and i'm not even a grad student yet so just yeah yeah no it's it's hard it's hard and, and you know to to all your listeners out there if you if you are considering doing a, a graduate program master's phd whatever don't do it unless it's funded honestly it's it's really not worth especially a phd my goodness if you have to pay for that it it's it I, I assure you there are better ways to do what you love without forking over 
dozens of thousands of dollars, <laughs> if not hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, of debt. Um, so I, I just want to say that. But also, you know, graduate students, I don't, it seems like every week I'm working on some other grant application or fellowship application just to, just to make the ends meet for my existence. Um, so, you know, getting, being able to ask politely while also rigorously explaining your research while also being accessible in its communication, it's a, it's a, it's its own job. Honestly, I could spend all of my time doing that stuff and still not get anything by the way. Um, you know, and so it's, it's very, yeah, it's very challenging. And universities have made it clear that they can't give money to everyone. And so, yeah, it becomes this really competitive, um, kind of toxic sometimes, um, atmosphere. And so, yeah, there's gotta be, I'm glad that I'm glad Lexi that you've been thinking about how to publicly fund them without going the political route and without going the kind of big, big dollar donor uh, route as well. And I think we should all consider how we might best uh, achieve that. Yeah. Uh, well, I'd, I'd love to continue this, but, you know, there's not enough hours in the day because this is these are such heady topics. But um, that's right. At, uh, at the end of uh, every podcast, I ask each guest to read Percy Shelley's Ozymandias because I think it, well, one, it's my favorite poem of all time. And two, it is just a, a gorgeous poem that I think really stands the test of time in terms of uh, its messages and uh, its applicability. So, uh, yeah, if you could read the poem and then, you know, obviously I'm not looking for the most you know, erudite answers possible. I don't need you to theorize your way through it, but, you know, just if you could give us your initial thoughts, just, you know, what does it evoke for you? You know, what, what does it, how does it speak to you essentially? Cool. Cool. Now the classicist in me wants to be like, well, which edition are you going to, which translation are you, but uh, I'll just, uh, I'll just do this one here. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered vis visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. I should confess that I've never read that poem in my entire life, and so it was really cool to be able to do that now uh, for you. My initial takes on this you know, it seems like, uh, you know, again, my historian brain is always tapping into things about memory and, um, uh, you know, um, the, 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 the desire of humans to be remembered. And I think that this, this poem really gets at this, uh, you know, memorial aspect. And I think there's a time, there's a time element here that's, uh, you know, it, there's a foreverness uh, in kind of physical memorials. And also it's the power of the words, right? I like this, 
I like this uh, line that the author includes, right? And on the pedestal, these words appear. And then it's a quote, right? The, so in my own work on kind of Greek history, like inscriptions are, are huge. Um, and, uh, you know, we think about audiences, right? Who's going to read these things? Can they even read them, right? Um, but regardless of all that, it's a permanent or semi-permanent kind of way to be remembered. Um, and I think that all of us, young and old, maybe more so when we're older, you know, we think about like, what are people going to say after we're gone, right? How are they going to remember us? And uh, what's our legacy, right? And I think that this poem really brings out that aspect of how do we be remembered? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a great take. And it's, yeah, I, I guess the, like the politician in me definitely jumps right to this is the best commentary that could possibly have been made on the ephemeral nature of political power and the hubris <laughs> of man. <laughs> um, Buried in the sands. Yeah. <laughs> so I, you know, as a classicist, I, I, I read this and I think one thing, and it's, it's funny because when I was younger, I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And so that love never went away. So I consider myself sort of like a literary Egyptologist, just kind of like on my sitting in my armchair over here. And, oh, yeah, um, and, you know, it, I guess there's, there's so many different perspectives you can take from it, but um, yeah, it, it's really, it's a memento mori, isn't it? Like yeah. it's the, the fact that nothing is, is permanent. And when I asked our mutual friend, Christian, Christian Casey about it, <laughs> uh, it's, it's so funny. Cause he, he gave me just like a, a classic, classic answer which was oh yeah this was Ramesses the the great he's gone now there's nothing left and then I was like oh you you hit it right on the yeah I was like you got this so um yeah I mean Osmandius is the the Greek translation of uh Ramesses um his throne name so uh you know it's it's kind of beautiful just to to in a way see oh yeah he literally thought he had the best most powerful empire in the entire world and um yeah his civilization's gone we wouldn't remember him at all if it weren't for this even even the artisan who like sculpted the thing for him Mm -hmm. um so you know like thinking about it kind of that way then um the the final question i'll 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 leave you with that um i i have started asking uh, at the end of each podcast that I, I love. It's my favorite question now, I think, um, <laughs> is if you interpret the poem kind of that way as just a statement on the ephemeral nature of power, what in modern society, or is there in modern society, a modern day Ozymandias? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, because again, the the poem is... is referring to explicitly to some kind of physical memorial, some kind of object that was created to last. In modern stuff, I think, I don't know. I, for some reason, I'm thinking of like the Eiffel Tower. I don't know why the Eiffel Tower is coming to mind. I just saw it on the news the other day. Maybe that's why I'm like <laughs> thinking about it because uh, it got repainted or something. Yeah, I think why was the Eiffel Tower painted? Well, because the Olympics are coming there in 2024 to Paris. And so they painted it gold or something like that. 
and they had to remove all of the old layers of paint in order to paint the new paint. Sure, that's like kind of what you do when you paint stuff. But they've removed all of that previous stuff to put on something new. And then what are they going to do in another 50 years? They're going to scrape off that old paint and put something new. So we're constantly trying to renew our facade. <laughs> and so I, I don't mean to be too metaphorical here, but maybe the Eiffel Tower here is our is our Ozymandias, or it will be an Ozymandias in the future when it too becomes buried in the, well, there's not really sand in Paris, but. <laughs> you can still say sands of time. The sands of time shall very, do very their worst. Of, very Prince of Persia, I know. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, and, and the thing I love about that question is that there there is no clear right or wrong answer, and I get so many different ones, you know. But, you know, I think it's just, it's a really great question, I think, that sparks, you know, what do we consider permanent? And uh, one of my favorite examples was um, my former professor said uh, an old casino in Atlantic City, right? Because when, oh. when those things came, we were like, oh, oh, this is great. This is the thing. It's going to be here forever, and it's it's going to make our society last and work and run. Yeah, they're gone. They're abandoned. They're just sad and desolate, right? Yeah. Oof. Yeah, that's that's depressing. <laughs> yeah. See, so I'm like, you know, there's 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 so many different answers, but um. Well, if I can yeah. offer a second possible one that I've that you've inspired me to 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 remember here, honestly, I think the internet. The it like we we think the internet is this end all be all source of knowledge. But like all it takes is a couple flooded basements and all the servers are destroyed. And rather than publishing books in print form, are we really going to have like USB drives 2000 years from now? Like what are they going to read about us? Because right now we read about the ancient stuff, ancient peoples because of texts that were copied over and over and over and over. I, I worry that the internet is not going to be that permanent. Uh, now I sound like now, of course, someone in 50 years would be like, oh, that guy was an idiot because he didn't think the internet was going to be here. But I just, there's something ephemeral to the internet that I think is um, underappreciated um, because it's so convenient for, for us. All technology for that, right? I mean, yeah. when, the, when the first iPhone came out, people were like, this is it. This is cutting it. Like this, this is, is it. humanity right here, <laughs> right? And then I'm like, so now we're on the iPhone 12, and how many features does this new iPhone have that the original just never would have been able to, like facial recognition, exactly. all this stuff. So I think, yeah, I mean, there's an argument to be said for all kinds of technology in the internet because I think eventually we're gonna have like Star Wars style holograms, right? We're gonna have like <laughs> teleportation. You know, someone even was like cars cars and planes are going to be ozymandias because we're going to have instant teleportation where you like have these like teleportation elevators in your home and you just like walk into one and then you exit wherever in the world you want to be and i was like <laughs> you know i don't really see that coming but in a thousand years who knows we might have everyone has their own teleportation station in in their house sure no one needs cool. a car anymore so <laughs> yeah i i want to thank you for for joining me again uh this morning uh, it's been super fun uh being able to chat and good luck with the the phd and everything thanks so much for having me this is a lot of fun and uh yeah i hope that your listeners uh had a little fun listening to us and feel free to pitch in or, or get involved for sure and i'll drop the link for sasa in the show notes Today's episode has proudly been sponsored by SASA, the Save Ancient Studies Alliance. Are you interested in ancient civilizations? Want to learn more about the origins of Assassin's Creed? Obsessed with ancient Norse, Mesoamerican or Chinese mythology? 
then join SASA, Save Ancient Studies Alliance, to remind the world the importance of ancient studies through fun events like archaeo gaming and book clubs. SASA is always looking for volunteers. Don't be shy, reach out and tell us why you love ancient studies. Visit www.saveancientstudies.org to learn more. Trireme Transit is now departing Ancient Odyssey. Next stop is Present Ponderings. I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. AdWanted UK is the provider of single source media data for agencies, media owners, brands, and academic institutions. And thanks to our rebranded news offering called The Media Leader, we can also lead the way in championing excellence and inclusion in the media industry. To find out more, simply visit the-media-leader.com to subscribe to our daily bulletins. The Media Leader, from AdWanted UK.